Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast featuring the Crop Doctors. Good afternoon from the Crop Doctors Podcast Studio in Stoneville. Tom and I are here in the studio by ourselves, and then on the phone we've got Dr. Brian Arnall from Oklahoma State. Brian, how you doing, man? Doing well. Just uh, loving the heat and the dry right now. Love might not be the right word, but we got heat and dry. So ours finally broke, and then it, maybe we got too much in places. But I know y'all have had a tough year out there. I had an email from Todd Ballman, who's weed scientist with Oklahoma State, and he made a comment about it's been a really long, hot, and dry year for y'all. Yeah, we're we're uh, they're talking to seeing triple digits again, and we were hoping we were done with those about a month ago. Yeah, ours, the temperature definitely is moderate. I noticed next week, Tom, we got some lows for the 60s, which is always a welcome change. Yeah, our, our heat dome reestablished over us. How many days do you think you've had over 100, Brian, this year? Way too many. Um, you know, in 12 and 13, we were knocking on, Central Oklahoma was knocking on 100 days over 100. Whoa! Not quite that way this year, but we, you know, we're definitely – 50, 60. I'd have to look at our, our, our mesonet range. But it, it wasn't that it, there were necessarily over 100. It's that we got hot early, maintained mid to high 90s, and we really haven't come out of that. So our summer crops got decimated because, you know, when you're uh, trying to pollinate and your daytime is 98 and your nighttime is 85, 89, 90, you just don't get a whole lot done. That's no right. matter how much irrigation you put on it. Now, the only saving grace you have in that part of the world is the humidity is not near what it is here. I mean, that's yeah. you've got a little more in Oklahoma than you do in the Texas panhandle, but not like we do here. It would be too much. We didn't have the humidity. We'd have to have rain to have humidity. So keeping with our podcast tradition, we have to ask our mm-hmm. host some off-the-wall. Ask the guest, not the host. I'm sorry. You're right. <laughs> Especially I got upgraded. A potentially manageable question. All right, Brian, being as that you're in Oklahoma and the wind blows constantly. I mean, Jason lived in Lubbock. I lived in Amarillo. You're, you're there in, in Oklahoma. How many wind, mm-hmm. How many windmills are there in Oklahoma? How many windmills? Well, since we're now a wind power state, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of wind power turbines. They are building them every day. Are they still throwing them up there off of? 40? What, what town is that? Like Weatherford or whatever that is, west Weatherford. of Oklahoma oh, yeah. City? Yeah, jeez. That was yep. Like, Those there up through Kansas, I-35 is dotted with them, I-40, and there's no slowing down. They're now through the high plains. So if you go out in the high plains, that Goodwill, the panhandle, you, you can look and you see them on both sides of the state. So out there you can look south and see uh, Texas, look north and see Kansas, and you'll see them in both states just about. Brian, you've been down here and spoke in Mississippi a couple times yep. at least. How many times have you been down here? I've done the uh, short course twice at least. I, I try to get down to the southeast, you know, really as much as possible. I enjoy getting down to that country. Well, and, and we appreciate it. And you said you were coming this year for the short course, so we look forward to seeing you in December. But yep. for, for folks that don't know you, why don't you just take a second and, and introduce yourself and, and tell folks uh, what you do in Oklahoma? Yeah, I'm Precision Nutrient Management Extension Specialist with Oklahoma State. I hold a three-way appointment, so I do extension as my primary. Uh, teaching is my secondary appointment, so I teach soil fertility and precision ag. 
And I also uh, have a research appointment. So I get to do all three of the land grant mission. My program is very applied work. We work in all crops that receive fertilizer in the state of Oklahoma just about. So pretty heavy on the wheat, uh, grain sorghum, soy, and corn side. Also done a fair amount of canola work when it came through the state. I get to do sunflower, sesame, all the forage crops, uh, including alfalfa. Pre-applied program, my my research and extension is is on the precision ag side. So a lot of in-season work, a lot of timing, product source, product management kind of stuff. And and research-wise, I I really, uh, it's intriguing to work for me to do on the spatial, how, how variable our soils are and how they need nutrients differently. And you're from Oklahoma, am I right? Yeah. So I was born and raised in Northeast Oklahoma, really no farm background. My, my ag background was uh, duck hunting, rabbit hunting on places uh, and went to Oklahoma State, tried to leave about three or four times and things just kept drawing back. Um, about ended up on the East Coast of Virginia Tech uh, for a program out there. And um, when I went, went to get a, a big boy job out to get my PhD, I looked around and I was interviewing for jobs and um uh, you know, Oklahoma State, I interviewed for it just out of sheer wanting the practice of it, and they offered it to me. And uh, it was a long time between that offer and my next uh, interview, so bird in hand and took the took the opportunity to stay in Stillwater, and uh, it's it's been great here. Uh, I, I get to work with folks from all over the U.S. and the world, spend a lot of time on the extension uh, road uh, in other states. I try to spend a lot of time in the Corn Belt and the, the Chesapeake Bay area and the Minnesota area because of the environmental regulation. Uh, it's on up there. I don't don't necessarily enjoy the, the environment up there, but knowing what's happened nutrient regulation-wise uh, when it comes to the Bay and also that, that Mississippi, the headlands of the Mississippi River, it's really important as far as a fertility specialist to kind of know what's going on. Because how hard and fast are some of those regulations expected to be coming? I, I mean, you know, and, and I, sure. I asked yep. that based on some of the news that we're getting, you know, out of Europe and Canada and all the rest of that. Yep. It's interesting where I'll admit, so Oklahoma, we're, we're fairly conservative state. You could say that much. So regulation, uh, we're really ag-dominated state regulation is, is going to be hard to do. But if you look at those regions, the, the Bay region, or if you're in Maryland or Delaware or up around the Great Lakes, those regulations come hard and they can fast. Uh, I'm, I always feel for the fertility specialist in the Bay region because if they write a fact sheet or a, a newsletter and say something wrong, it could be law the next day and, and interpreted wrong. You know, they... One year they, they made a law that nitrogen could not be applied between a certain window. Uh, that window would have been October through about February. You couldn't apply nitrogen because of this one study that said, you know, nitrogen applied here is inefficient for a corn crop. But all the small grains and wheat up there, it's, a, it's kind of an acidic soil that needs some phosphorus. All the phosphorus options had nitrogen, and the law came in effect said you cannot apply any form of nitrogen during the window of October and February. So all the wheat in that that Bay region went in, and I was up there that spring, and it looked horrible because none of it had a drop of phosphorus because of the law that regulated nitrogen. And so that's the biggest fear is that a lot of legislation may not have a strong agronomic understanding, you know, 
ag legislation really likes calendar dates here and here. You know, there's this hard and fast rule when ag, it's not a calendar date system, right? And it's not a black and white nitrogen. I don't want them applying nitrogen up in that region, like a ton of nitrogen in December. It doesn't make sense. But say all nitrogen applications should be outlawed. Now that takes it to another level. So that in essence is could be the reality moving forward then in a greater number of agricultural yep. regions. And that's all just basically going to depend on legislation put forth within mm-hmm. each state. It's no different fundamentally with the pesticide world no. and the things that we're facing there in those, whether it's weed science in my world or Tom with, with yeah. plant pathology, you've got some people making a decision we know there's bad apples in every bunch, but in a lot of cases, I think they believe they're making the correct decision, but they don't have that agronomic background like what you referenced, Brian, mm-hmm. to make a yeah. good, informed decision. I mean, anybody that has ever been around wheat knows that zero nitrogen from October to February, that doesn't <laughs> make any sense. That's your optimum time, or at least it is down here, yep. and then some of our herbicides, insecticides, there's been some decisions made there that you kind of scratch your head about. We lost some herbicides in Oklahoma in, in a soybean crop after after seed had been bought. So that that was an interesting thing this spring. You guys are, I'm sure, we're, we're well of some of that work. Yeah. But on the nutrient side, and why it's important to you too is that, especially your listeners, is that I, I focused a lot of my early career making a lot of visits to Minnesota because that's the, the headwaters of the Mississippi River, and uh, all things flow down downriver. And so as different states north or the northern part, as Minnesota enacted law, basically anything that happens up north will trickle down through the Mississippi River Basin, because once it's enacted up north, then the next person down says, well, somebody opposed them and say, well, Minnesota's done this, but you haven't. So now it's got to be coming from you. And so there's this trickle-down effect, specifically when it comes to nutrients and that Mississippi River Basin. It's a good podcast, Tom, when you don't talk about what you said you were going to talk about when you started. So we're right on track with that. But I know I appreciate the insight, Brian, stuff I hadn't thought about in a while. Well, and it's not like we've had a guest on that's really discussed that problem is is who do you have on to talk about that and i think that's yeah that's a perfect segue because that's something i think just about everybody's made aware of right now unless you've had your head buried in the sand because it's been in the news for the last nine months at least and continues to be pretty you know front and center so brian you mentioned spatial phenomenon related to nutrient management and you have a pretty wide reputation being known for that and so the, one of the things that tom and i discussed that when we said hey let's call brian was fall soil testing and then how you do interprets not the right word because we interpret soil test results but yeah. how, how you apply that over geography and you know in our case maybe farm level county level yeah i have the real world answer and the, the researcher answer, and I, and I try to blend the two because as far as nutrient, I want to be, you know, I want to be spot on, give the best that I also understand reality of life. So if we get down to a soil test, if we look at what that is, that is a soil test is a chemical extraction or a method of chemical extraction to try to 
estimate what plant availability will be. And so plant availability is going to depend upon biological aspects. It's going to depend on weather, soil type changes. And so we already have there a little bit of a challenge in that we're using something to estimate, right? It's not an exact. And so we already have a little bit of a fudge factor there. And then one of the challenges that we have, we present forward, and I'm, I'm a big fan of presenting all the problems with something so that we could then understand how to properly use the technology. So uh, even, even the best technology has weak points, and I want to find those weak points before I implement it so I can work around. So soil testing, let's just say a grid soil sample. I do a two-half-acre grid. I'm pulling a soil sample every 250 to 300 foot from each other which is better than a composite because a composite is just a single soil sample that represents a 40-acre field or a 120-acre field. But the point sample gives me a little bit of spatial awareness of highs and lows. What we can't do is think that that grid sample, even at a two and a half acre, is a perfect resolution. The, the coastal plains is, is the perfect example because you go from sand blow or sand vein and drop right into a heavy clay or a silt loam. And so the transition from uh, basically dunal sand to a gumbo can be really rapid. So we're not really, you know, unaware of the variability out there. But it's how do we manage the variability using soil tests? So I'll still go back and say, against me, so industry will come at soil tests. There's a lot of failures. So like, yeah, the soil testing isn't an, a perfect science, but it is a really good tool if we understand it. That tool being, if my soil test potassium is really low, I know without absolute questions out that I need to put potassium on because the probability of a response is high. That means if I go to Vegas, I'm going to lay my money down. Am I going to get it back every time? No, but if I got a high probability, that's a win. If the soil test is out of the roof, then my probability of return on investment is lower. Is it zero? Never. We always have those environments where may not get a response from low, may get a response in a high soil test. A lot of the time, that's probably a system like we have a lot of response to potassium in high soil tests when we have limited roots. Maybe we have nematode issues. Maybe we're stunning the root there. Maybe we have pH or a, a clay pan where we don't have the root growth to go out there and get to all the potassium that our soil has. So we're working with that. And so the soil test file has its problems. It's still a phenomenal base point on where we go. Now we start talking about management. Fall management of P and K, let's say I get my fall soil test, I find it out, and I'm going to apply in the fall. That, as far as a management, from what I see, as far as a personnel management, is a good time. Fall is a slower time, typically not going down or a lot not going on, and I have more opportunity to get either the applicator called in or do it myself. But it, while it's a really good time for personnel and farm management, it's not the best time to put those nutrients down, especially coming for a spring crop if we're going cotton, corn, or, or soybean. It's because those nutrients, P and K specifically, are the most available when we first apply them. So phosphorus. Phosphorus is immobile, but when it first dissolves in the soil, it moves a little bit. So we can do in-season application of phosphorus wheat in Oklahoma. We're, we're shockingly able to do that. I didn't expect it. So we have movement. 
But when you put it in a soil system, that phosphorus is highly, highly chemically reactive, meaning it wants to bind with calcium, magnesium, aluminum, or iron, depending on your soil pH. Calcium and mag at higher pH, iron and aluminum at a lower pH. And so from day one, it's the most available, and then it becomes slowly unavailable depending on your pH. I've got a lot of old-timers here in Oklahoma will say, well, you know, phosphorus isn't available immediately. It takes a long time. I think that comes from the old days of using uh, ordinary superphosphate or rock phosphate, which was the mined product, which had to be broken down in the soil from soil, uh, soil uh, water chemical reactions. Our current fertilizer phosphorus is readily available at first and becomes unavailable. On the K side, our potassium is less bound in the soil, but if we look at it at clay soil, certain clays will bind that potassium. My concerns on potassium in the fall is any ground that is uh, highly drained, so the sandy soils, the sandy loams, those kinds of soils are well-drained, which in that region I know there's plenty of, that potassium can't hold on to the sandy soil very well. So if you have a wet fall or a wet early spring, the probability is that you're going to leach a lot of that out. Uh, I was looking at some data from LSU that uh, uh, Beatrix Haggard uh, did when she was down there before we stole her back up to Oklahoma. She had some stuff in 2013 and 14 that showed P and K application in the fall was much less efficient than a springtime applied that what you could do with 90 pounds in the fall, it only took 60 pounds for spring application. So I'm always working with folks on trying to adjust both the management efficiency, which would be what I would think of it as fall because it's a little bit slower, you have more time, versus the nutrient efficiency, which is really better suited for closer to uh, that plant growth timing. So is our history of fall applications of P and K fertilizer, is that a just a combination of tradition and logistics? Or was it knowledge at the time too? Oh, so I want to put tradition versus logistics and also we have the same thing with nitrogen. So so you mentioned our nitrogen, you know, wanted it on, especially down there in December, January, February, and in Oklahoma, you can even go back to our last uh, he's now at Arkansas, our former department head in small grains, uh, Jeff Edwards. He wanted on nitrogen of planting for our grain-only wheat. He wanted it on. He wanted at least 50% on. I've got 12 years of data that says I don't want any nitrogen on pre-plant. In fact, the first nitrogen I want to look at is February for our environment. That it, it does has no value. Now, why did we do that? One is that we ran a lot of anhydrous. Well, you don't anhydrous is a pre-plant kind of product, right? So you got that too. The timing of that was July, August, and September. That is a downtime for the central plains to put on nitrogen. And three is, you know what, if it's down, I don't have to worry about it. That's one thing that has taken off of my concern about getting time on and time in the field. So I would guess for the Southeast, that fall applied P and K goes back to logistics kind of a risk management it's safer to pot plant in the fall because maybe you can't get on the ground in the spring and so there, there's just a lot going on that we kind of work around and I'm, i try to get producers and farmers to think about it is that you know 
maybe I start in the fall, but I, I, I try to stretch a little bit closer to springtime when that plant's actually going to be needing it. Because you start thinking about a multi-crop farm and planting dates of different commodities and then wrapping back around and spraying and then nitrogen fertilizer. It's a whole yep. lot of things that stack up in the months of, for us, March, April, and May that need all seem like they need to be done at once. Absolutely. And so it's like you say, it goes to logistics. I talked to a lot of folks about nutrient efficiencies and they'll, they'll flat out tell me that they, they know they're sacrificing nutrient efficiency because of management or farm efficiency. But I would say if you have an opportunity to move it, say, from a November application to a January application, that even those three months, that's 60 to 90 days that that nutrient isn't there to be either tied up or lost. And so every day in the soil that the plant's not using it is a day in the soil that could be lost. Brian, consider Tom or me or a grower in Mississippi or somewhere in the south Fertilizer prices have been really high for the last 12 months. Sell me on soil testing and the importance of that for my operation. So you hit on it, and, and I'm going to be the bearer of bad tidings, is that if I had to go, again, I'm going to Vegas again. If i got to go to Vegas and bet on fertilizer getting cheaper, I'm going to put money on that bet. So we, we're going to, I want to say, make your farm budget on off of current farm prices, which means we need to be, aware of what we got and what we don't got meaning how much p and k how much whatever nutrient is of your concern in that soil test is a huge component of it because it's extremely important I'll, I'll tell you all the work that i've done and about everybody else in the fertility realm if your soil test is low there is an absolute need to manage for that nutrient because of the liebig's law of the minimum it is it is cutting your potential and if we have a good season and your potential is unlimited with water and rain and and pests aren't killing you then why would you want to limit it because you didn't put down 40 pounds of of potash that that was called for uh then again if your soil test is sky high and phosphorus and you're running 100 ppm because maybe you had a, a history of manure why do i want to pay that 80 cents a pound of p205 when when my soil test tells me that we got a couple generations of farming before this soil test phosphorus goes down to a need level. So that soil test, whatever the cost is for a grid or a composite, is this wonderful starting point. And we don't want to limit grain price, fiber price is too good to say we're going to limit it because we're not putting down the soil test says we need 40 and I'm not going to spend that $30 that could potentially impact me by 10 to 20 bushel or by a quarter bale or a tenth of bale of cotton. So our price structure for the output is still at a point where we, we can't be cutting back. But we got to still be aware that there might be fields that don't need it. So be aware of that distribution and, and make sure that you put the nutrients where they are uh, needed and avoid those, those areas that might be high. And that would be one of those, those areas where if you have historic manure, litter or any of those applications that more than likely your P&K levels are pretty good. How often, Brian, how often should you soil test those field situations to determine what your nutrients are? Well, um, I'm going to, I'm going to draw back to the pins. How much money are you going to, you going to watch the soil testing each year? I'll put it this way. My, my ideal world, this is, this is Brian's perfect scenario is that 
let's say I, I take over a farm and I'm starting to farm it. My year one, I'm going to grid sample that thing at a two and a half acre resolution, knowing that I've already said that there's more spatial differences. But that grid sample allows me to look at each nutrient layer independently. And then I can start approaching problem areas, low P, low pH, high pH, whatever it is, I can approach those and move to zone. And after that point, ideally, so let's say I take all my land and I'm on a, a four-year grid rotation. I don't like grid sampling every three to four years. I think that's excessive. I want to take the same number of samples I would have, same amount of money I would have spent on grid sampling and start doing point sampling on every field every year. Because if we're looking at making management decisions on phosphorus and potassium, if we're in a four-year rotation, we have year one, take a sample. I need to add phosphorus. I wait four years, take another sample. Okay, here's where I'm at. I need another four years, so that's eight years down the road to get three points as a timeline to determine what trend I'm moving at. That means I could have made a management decision earlier, but I didn't have enough data to do it. So if I can move to a, a couple point samples off of every field every year, I feel like I can make a more rapid change in management and a better informed change in management than doing a grid every four years and even more so a, a composite every four years. Brian, when you started talking about soil tests or soil in general, you mentioned the variability in fields and the fact that you can go from a really coarse texture to a really fine texture in not too great a distance. And we certainly have all that here thinking about the grid sampling and then moving into point sampling for fields how do you make the determination when maybe this particular field you need more than one point sample what keys are you looking for to tip you off to that that's a really good question and i want to go back to our best friend depends because it depends if i know if the field is textural driven where i go from from sand to buckshot if i go from a very heavy textural change, I want to rely upon the textural change to drive that. If I, if I have some major differences in, in CEC or major differences in texture, I want to focus on the extremes and the middle ground. So I want to get that sand, I want to get that heavy clay, and I want to get something from that loamy ground to represent that. If I don't have that, but my yield monitor and my eyeball tells me that the field is highly variable, then I'm going to look at either historic yield data, the highs and lows, or I'm going to look at landscape position. So if we've got a little bit bigger field that has some roll to it, maybe it's the bottom and slide slope and hilltop kind of thing. So it's to me, I'm a very much a by field kind of thought process. And when I, when I think of site specific management, I want site specific data for that management. So I want to draw to whatever's driving variability in the field, whether it's texture, whether it's slope, or it might be organic matter or, or drainage systems. So it, it's really what do I, as a, a producer, farmer, think is driving this field not being a consistent 200 bushel across the border or whatever we're looking at. How would you suggest a farmer go about getting some of that zone-type structural data? Is, is anyone using Varus for those types of things? Varus has been around forever. It's a longstanding uh, sensor. We've got more now on the market. So Varus is electroconductivity. It puts disc in the ground. It measures the ability for electrical current to pass through 
the soil from one disc together, and it's a great soil textural mapping unit. And so there's other machines. There's EM machines, so it's electromagnetivity, and it's basically a varus without the disc. It, it emits electromagnetic energy into the soil and it reads it, and it's, again, highly correlated with texture and organic matter. Those are kind of the two primary market drivers. Both EC and EM technologies are really good at getting textural differences. You come out in some of our fields in Oklahoma, and we have five or six soil types, but they're all silt loams. The major factor is where is the clay at that clay layer, whether it's at six inches or, or 36 inches, and so they don't do us much good. But if I took it down to a, a river, alluvial soil, or something that was laid by river deposits, so some of our old oxbows and and some of the stuff, I always I always pull up maps of Mississippi, uh, Google Earth maps of Mississippi in the Delta region for my soils and precision ag class, and show all the different uh, old oxbows and things from the river. Those do make sense with a a thing like an EC map. Um, I know University of Georgia uh, in Clemson both did a lot of work back probably 10, 15 years ago looking at using those EC zones for corn nitrogen management. Another question on soil testing, timing. What is our optimum time for soil tests? And I hear you say it depends again. But the reason I got to thinking about that, you mentioned how dry it had been in Oklahoma and then here – like if you come to right here standing on the station at Stoneville, it's been decently wet for the last month, Tom, yep. but you can go right down the road and you might have missed several of those rains. And I know at my house oh, it's yeah. been relatively dry. So we're getting into the time of the year where we are historically pulling a lot of soil tests. So what do you look for there on timing? My timing needs to be consistent. And so it, it's operational consistency. What what I don't want to see is somebody take fall and then go spring and then go midsummer and then go fall. It needs to be consistent so that you have the same pattern. The soil is going to change with the environment. Our typical drying, wettering patterns, our heating and cooling patterns. And so if I've been in a system where I have been pulling soil samples in the fall for the last 10 years, I'm not going to deviate from that. If I've not pulled samples, I still think fall is a great time because it is a management-wise a good time to get in the field and do things. You're not in the rush of spring. What it gets is that that fall sample, when you pull it, it's going to probably be a little bit lower in K because you haven't had the cycling. What we get over winter with a lot of our, our summer crop rotations is that corn residue is breaking down over winter and early spring in recycling the potassium. So if you switch from a a fall sampling to a late spring, you're going to see a big, potentially a big change in your potassium because you've gotten out of when you run that potassium cycle because everything's kind of in this cycle of breakdown, uptake, and then redistribution and breakdown. Is there a time or a point when you say, it's too dry to sample, your sample you know, accuracy is going to be off just because of the soil condition at the time of the sampling? I want you to come to Oklahoma. That That is when we can't get a probe in the ground. <laughs> I, I was picking up a 100-horse tractor with three-point Giddings probe because I couldn't get it more than eight inches in the ground. That's when it's too dry. Okay. I don't worry about um, the soil. If you can get a probe in the ground, 
I'm I'm good to run. There's enough moisture in it to get that probe moved through. You got to remember, most of the scenarios we pull that soil, we're going to bring it into an oven, and there's there's enough variance in drying, wetting cycles that I'm not going to really worry about sealed moisture. Uh, for for us in Oklahoma, it's do I have enough moisture to get the probe six to eight inches in the ground? Brian, thanks thanks so much for the time. Uh, I know I know you're busy this time of year, but you're always busy because I see your name on lots of programs. So we really appreciate you taking the time, sitting down with us, and talking about this pretty important topic. I really appreciate it, guys. I always have fun visiting with you, no matter what. Thanks, Brian. The Mississippi Crop Situation Podcast is a production of Mississippi State University Extension.